Welcome to Podcasts on Demand, a continuing medical education activity. This activity includes the most recent and current clinical data presented by leading experts. If you are seeking continuing education credit, please review the disclosures and the requirements for a successful completion of the activity prior to listening to the podcast. A link is found in the podcast description that can direct you to this information. Hello, my name is Ruben Mesa, and I'm the president of Atrium Health Libyan Cancer the executive director of the Atrium Health Wake Forest Baptist Comprehensive Cancer Center. And excited to join my wonderful colleagues, Dr. Mascarenas and Bose today for today's conference briefs, highlighting myelofibrosis fibrosis clinical data from key conferences, ASCO, EHA, and SOHO from 2023. With that, let's pivot to, uh, to uh, John Mascarenas on current and emerging treat, JAK inhibitors for myelofibrosis. All right, Ruben, thanks very much. Thanks for the uh, for setting us up for this um, discussion. I'm going to be um, talking about current and emerging JAK inhibitors in MF and cover the emerging data from ASCO, EHA, um, moving into SOHO. Um, and I think it's important for the uh, for the audience to understand that there are now four JAK inhibitors that are approved for myelofibrosis in the U.S., listed here, ruxolitinib, fidratinib, and picritinib, and then most recently, mamalotinib. They all share one thing in common, they're JAK2 inhibitors, but there are um, differences and nuances um, in their kinome profiles that likely explain uh, different niches, uh, different toxicity profiles, and the opportunity to even use these drugs in sequential fashion. Um, so right now, ruxolitinib, Remains the, the main um, JAK inhibitor of choice, particularly in the upfront, but fidratinib is a great drug for a second line agent, particularly to capture spleen responses. And picritinib um, has captured the area of thrombocytopenia and the cytopenic myelofibrosis phenotype with mamalotinib as a drug now that can be used to improve anemia in patients that have um, ongoing anemia, which Ruben has illustrated remains a burden, not just to the patient, but also, also to um, the healthcare system in general. Um, I will note that there are JAK inhibitors that are still in development, despite the fact that we have this plethora of available JAK inhibitors, like itacitinib, the selective JAK1 inhibitor, and then JAKtinib, uh, which is a JAK1-2 inhibitor that's been mostly developed in Asia and China, and we'll review some of the emerging data on that agent as well. So the, the first abstract I'm going to highlight today is an abstract that capitalizes on a theme that has been seen with other JAK inhibitors, namely ruxolitinib, which is the impact of spleen response um, to an end, uh, endpoint that matters to patients and physicians, which is survival. So this is looking um, at data from PERSIST-2, which was the pivotal study um, that led to the approval of picritinib at 200 milligrams twice daily, and comparing um, those patients that were treated at 200 twice daily to BAT in terms of those that had a response, which here was um, a spleen response of um, at least 10% or greater at 12 weeks, so at an early time point versus not having that. And what you'll see in the box on the left is, in general, um, there were some differences uh, between those patients with treated with picritinib that had a spleen response. They tended to have uh, disease other than high-risk disease. Um, tended to be less transfusion um, dependent. They were equally um, patients who had seen prior JAK inhibitor and not, which is an important uh, important observation. These patients had large spleens, um, but sort of not surprisingly, um, or, or maybe surprisingly, had uh, those that responded had even larger spleens than those that didn't respond. The, the point of this analysis was that at 12 weeks, um, one could see an association between spleen response with picritinib and survival that wasn't seen with 
uh, with BAT, which again was was mostly ruxolinib in those patients that responded. And if you try to look at what was the, the, the minimum threshold of response at 12 weeks in terms of spleen response that correlated with survival, it was a minimum of 10%. That's where you had the best separation between the survival curves as shown in, in C um, down below in green with picritinib, and that was not true with BAT. So interestingly, there is, a, there is an apparent um, survival benefit with spleen response, even with a minimum threshold of 10% reduction in 12 weeks with picritinib that wasn't also seen with, um, with the BAT arm, which again was mostly rucks in the responders um, at low doses, sort of making the point that there's a likely mechanistic difference between these two agents that, um, that leads to this response and improved survival, perhaps uh, the fact that it's an IRAC-1 inhibitor um, and it's also an ACBR-1 inhibitor, and that might be the differentiating factor here in the uh, cytopenic MF patient population. If you drill down a little bit further, again, I made the point that it was mostly the RUX patients that responded um, of at least 10% with SVR, despite the fact that that didn't seem to correlate with survival. And then if you look below, the investigators also pointed out that this correlation between spleen response and survival was really only um, discernible in the context of measuring the spleen response by imaging, so spleen volume response. When looking at it by palpation, which is you know not as rigorous of a way of, of evaluating spleen response, it was really lost. You couldn't really appreciate um, a statistically significant difference uh, between the spleen response of 20%, 35%, or 50% by length reduction and survival. So although Nominally, it was there, and the green bar, uh, the green curve uh, demonstrates picritinib has a survival better than BAT. Uh, it was not statistically significant um, using uh, spleen response, uh, um, uh, palpation. Uh, perhaps at 20% was a little bit better. What about looking at spleen and symptoms as a function of uh, baseline blood counts? So um, this is a pooled analysis from PERSIST-1 and PERSIST-2. So taking all the patients that were treated both in the upfront, second-line setting, irrespective of, of platelet count, um, and looking at the various uh, uh, depths of spleen response and symptom improvement, and then stratifying them by, um, by baseline platelet count or hemoglobin on top. And what you can see is, no matter which way you look at the patients, um, the spleen response and symptom response in each category was consistent across the different um, baseline um, uh, uh, variables. Perhaps the one exception I'll point out is if you look at TSS 50% or greater, that was actually the highest in patients who had hemoglobins less than eight. These patients who have quite cytopenic disease and anemia as a feature of that profile actually interestingly had the best benefit in terms of TSS 50. The, the bigger, the bigger take-home is whether you're looking at spleen symptom or even PGIC, um, the responses were consistent across the patient profiles as it, as it relates to um, baseline cytopenias. Now, if you look at survival, this is an interesting um, an analysis that was a prospective phase two study done in Germany looking at patients who were intensively treated with picritinib um, by design uh, one month prior to a reduced intensity conditioning transplant for myelofibrosis using fludarabine, busulfan, and ATG. Um, and although they enrolled about 68 patients, uh, it was about half those patients actually ended up getting the transplant. So patients fell off for various reasons. Some of the patients were transplanted off study. 
But the point of this study was to determine whether there was an additional benefit of a JAK2, IRAC1, ACVR1, FLT3 inhibitor to reduce the inflammatory signaling that is characteristic of MF in order to improve upon uh, engraftment and, and graft-versus-host disease. Similar studies, both prospectively and retrospectively, have been conducted with ruxolitinib. Um, so it's, it is a, a value to see whether an alternative JAK inhibitor that has a slightly different profile may also provide uh, similar or, or even improved benefit in this setting. And what the investigators saw in this phase two study was that there was reduced uh, incidence of both acute and chronic, both moderate and severe GVHD um, in this setting compared to historical controls. And you can see the survival curve here of these patients that were transplanted. And these are, of course, advanced patient would suggest a, a survival, a median survival at a follow-up of about 33 months that had not been reached with the GVHD-free survival that also looks uh, relatively uh, positive, uh, again, compared to historical controls. This is a very difficult disease to transplant. And as Ruben and Perth, we know, uh, patients who uh, go to transplant with MF are often complicated by poor engraftment, GVH, um, and other complications. So trying to improve upon those outcomes with a JAK inhibitor like procritinib um, is an, an interesting and important um, uh, clinical investigation, um, and more data uh, is needed to, to fully understand the, the, the full benefit and the long-term benefits of procritinib prior to transplant. But this data set was, was interesting in its um, perspective data. Um, here I'm showing you um, an abstract from Dr. Masarova, uh, who works with Dr. Bose at MD Anderson, using a MAC analysis, which is a, a matched adjusted indirect comparison. So basically taking patient-level data from one trial and comparing it to aggregated data from other trial um, and adjusting for variables um, by weighting uh, the variables uh, with statistical uh, methods. And here we're looking at um, patients who are JAK inhibitor naive. So from the Simplify One study with mamalotin versus uh, uh, fedratinib in the Jakarta study. And then on the right, those patients are JAK inhibitor experience. So a composite of, of simplified two and the momentum study patients with mamalotinib and Jakarta two, which was the phase two study of single agent fedratinib. The point of this analysis is, is, are there differences when comparing across these trials in terms of the, um, the incidence of um, thrombocytopenia and other um, non-hematologic toxicity with fedratinib and mamalotinib. And if you see the superscripts A indicate in those uh, areas that are statistically significant, um, but in each case, mamalotinib did appear to be, in this back analysis, associated with less thrombocytopenia, um, diarrhea, nausea, um, even serious adverse events um, and adverse events that lead to um, discontinuation and, and importantly, dose reduction um, and grade three, four adverse events. And this was true both in the JAK inhibitor naive space as well as those that are JAK inhibitor experience, suggesting that mamalotinib has a favorable um, toxicity profile uh, when comparing um, this drug to fedratinib, which, um, you know, of course has caveats when uh, comparing across trials. The MAC analysis is hoping to try to um, to try to uh, uh, accommodate those variables um, that do exist and confound such analyses. This is a really interesting um, abstract uh, presented by um, Claire Harrison and colleagues. So this is um, a sort of a, a different way of looking at anemia and the impact of therapy on anemia. Um, here, this is from data from a, um, a translational phase two study of patients treated uh, with MF treated with mamalotinib. 
And this is like a shift plot. So on the on the y-axis, you're looking at the baseline transfusion uh, intensity. So this is units per uh, per um, cycle of transfusion, and on the right, transfusion intensity during the treatment period. And what this analysis shows us is that with mamelotinib treatment, there is a shift. Um, and a reduction, at least a stabilization, a reduction in transfusion burden in 90% of those patients that are trans that are treated with mamelotinib, um, suggesting that even in the absence of transfusion independence, that there is at least stability or reduction in the transfusion burden across time um, during mamelotinib treatment. And you know, one of the points uh, Ruben made in his previous presentation, which I think is is even relevant here, um, in terms of um, the 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 healthcare. Uh, uh, resources allocation and and costs associated with with uh, transfusion was that, that perhaps there wasn't such a, a huge difference between those patients that become transfusion independent versus those patients that still are transfusion requiring. Uh, but this analysis would suggest that you do reduce, um, you can reduce the amount of transfusions um, with mamelotinib even in the absence of um, of not obtaining transfusion um, independence, um, and and perhaps that 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 does have a benefit. Um, to patients uh, overall. And that's what this abstract um, is trying to show from a different angle. So this is looking at transfusion-related costs, offset, and time burden in patients with myelofibrosis that were treated in the momentum study, uh, comparing mamelotinib to danazole. So this is not really asking questions about how patients feel or their performance status or their impression of change. It's really looking from a, from a financial and time perspective, which is not unimportant, um, with the idea that anemia is a burden to the patient, to the healthcare system, and, and a financial burden. Um, and if you look at the U.S. Um, dollars, so up on top, the total medical cost, so TDs transfusion-dependent, TVTRs, those patients who are transfusion um, um, independent or transfusion requiring, you'll see that with mamelotinib compared to Danazol in each case, there um, are less U.S. dollars associated, both in total, but also as outpatient transfusion costs uh, than Danazol, and um, even less if you can achieve uh, a reduction, even a reduction in your transfusion burden, suggesting that there's a financial, um, not, I wouldn't say gain, but, but less financial toxicity, perhaps, if you can even reduce the amount of transfusions um, someone is experiencing uh, in the course of, of myelofibrosis. And of course, not surprisingly, um, also less time um, needed in a transfusion suite, which is a real burden to the patients um, and their family members if they're constantly being um, transfused. So, so reduction in, in costs and reduction in, in time burden uh, with mamelotinib compared to danazole um, in terms of anemia benefit and transfusion uh, burden. Um, so I'll, you know, I'll finish up here with uh, jactinib. This is the um, the next JAK inhibitor that uh, remains in clinical development. Um, it's a JAK one two three inhibitor. Also inhibits ACVR one. There are three studies in which it's being evaluated, uh, both in the upfront setting um, and in the in the relapse refractory setting. Um, and I'm going to show you some of the data today from uh, intermediate two and high risk patients who are JAK inhibitor naive. Uh, 47 of which received jactinib and 23 received hydroxyurea. Again, this was done in Asia. We would typically not use hydroxyurea as a control um, in this country at this point. Um, and this is a, a patient population that I think uh, most practitioners could relate to in terms of the demographics. Spleen volume is not as large as some of the other studies with, with uh, patients who've been uh, previously treated. Uh, but you can see the mean hemoglobin was um, 9.2 and, and platelet count 230, 9.
Um, and what we see here is that at 12 weeks and 24 weeks, there's significant advantage of this uh, novel JAK inhibitor versus hydroxyurea in terms of screen volume reduction of 35% or greater. In fact, 72.3% is probably one of the highest um, SVR rates I've seen at 24 weeks with monotherapy JAK inhibitor. Um, and that definitely caught my attention. That was significantly more than the 17% seen with hydroxyurea. Symptom improvement was also superior with uh, jactinib versus hydroxyurea, um, particularly at week 24 with 83% versus 43%. Um, symptom improvement. Um, and there wasn't one specific subgroup that was really driving this, which was seen across the different subgroups of patients um, that were treated on this trial, favoring the JAK inhibitor um, versus uh, hydroxyurea. I mean, this was relatively well controlled, with great, uh, well uh, tolerated, with great three, four rates of thrombocytopenia anemia and leukopenia with the jectinib of 17, 25, and 2%. Um, so not a lot of um, toxicity, perhaps even you know a benefit um, in, in terms of less anemia than one would expect with, uh, for example, ruxolitinib. So this becomes an interesting um, agent um, that again has been developed mostly outside of the U.S. Even in the in the second line setting, we see pretty good um, and pretty comparable um, uh, spleen um, and symptom improvements shown here. So um, SVR 35% rate of about 32% um, in the relapsed um, setting with 43% uh, in those patients who were uh, previously intolerant to ruxolitinib, So second line agent um, with very significant um, symptom improvements um, as well. So providing a sense that there may be another, another option here. Maybe, maybe I'll pivot for a second to Ruben and, and Prithvi and ask the question, we, you know, we're blessed here with four JAK inhibitors that are approved in the US. Is there room for a fifth JAK inhibitor and where would we use it? You know, I, I, I think these data overlap to a significant degree. I mean, I think that to be transparent, I think this drug was developed in China to have a, an in-country alternative to, to, to uh, you know, spending lots of money on uh, on foreign JAK inhibitors. You know, so, so I think part of the goal of these studies really has been to demonstrate non-inferiority to perhaps, you know, co compete with the other JAK inhibitors in other parts of the world. You know, but that said, I think as we, you know, uh, see longer term data, we'll see if there's any differentiation. You know, I think their, their comparison against hydroxyurea, you know, it was kind of a, a, a weak comparison for, for the trial. Yeah, agreed, agreed. All right. I, I agree, uh, Ruben and John. Like like you said, you know there is uh, it's it's a little difficult to extrapolate these data to uh, to the to to, to to our scenario here. But I think uh, you know moving on perhaps from this, there is going to be interest in the Jack two mutant specific uh, inhibitors that some companies are developing. Agreed. I mean, we're, we're moving into an era where we're now actually developing molecularly defined therapies, which is pretty exciting. But having a having a, a wealth of JAK inhibitors available to us to uh, to individualize for our patients still still remains, um, you know, a really good position to be in. We hope you found this podcast useful and educational. To receive continuing education credit and to download your printable certificate, please go to the activity page at practice.cme com to complete the post-test and evaluation to receive continuing education credit.